in anything that you do, no matter how successful you are, no matter how far you get to bring it or go with it, just remembering why you're there, enjoying the process and truly loving what you do is just so important. everyone. Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 165 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about big wins, tough moments, and everything in between. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes and CEOs to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. Today, I am sitting down with Kai Leitner. He's a professional climber, arguably one of the best in the world from Fayetteville, North Carolina. And get this, he first walked into a climbing gym when he was six years old. To date, he's earned 12 national championship titles, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. We talk about it all from the why behind how he started in the sport, dealing with ADHD as a young kid looking for an outlet to channel that energy, to how he feels about being the only person of color at his level, so to speak, in climbing. We talk about the importance of access in the sport, and he talks to me about his relatively new nonprofit called Climbing for Change, which aims to help with that by connecting underserved communities with individuals and organizations that seek to increase minority participation in rock climbing and the outdoor adventure industry. He also gets super open and honest about a massive hurdle he spoke out about publicly last year, dealing with an eating disorder as a result of the pressure he felt to be the best. He says that taking time off from the sport and going to college was a major game changer for him, helping him get his mind right and reframe his relationship with food for the better. We connected on the heels of Kai being in a campaign for Got Milk, remember those, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's a two-minute film called The Wall, directed by Jimmy Chin, who you may recognize from Free Solo. And in the film, he's scaling a climbing wall, which is legit atop a 30-story building in downtown Kansas City. It's literally remarkable. You have to have to have to check it out. I really, really appreciate Kai for his honesty and vulnerability in our conversation. I want to make sure to mention here that if you or someone you know is struggling with disordered eating, I'm going to be including some helpful resources in the show notes and you are not alone. Make sure you are following along with Hurdle over on social media. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I'm over at Emily Abadi. And I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. If you have not yet rated and reviewed the show in Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to me if you take the time to do it today, right now, this very second. Then come back and make sure to listen to the episode. But head on in over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show, give it five stars, and tell me what you love. That's it for now with that. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Kai Leitner. He is professional climber, a 2024 Olympic hopeful. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty awesome. How about you guys? Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome is like, I'm good. Things are going smoothly. Is there anything you want to tell us right off the bat? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I had a really great breakfast. I had a morning training at like 9 a.m. And so I feel like my skin is glowing. The vibes are great. It's 100 degree weather, but so I'm inside an air conditioned. (laughs) That is something to definitely be grateful for. (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing great. I just feel bad for the people doing yard work outside. Amen. Well, speaking of usually climbing outside versus climbing inside, I know when you uh, started climbing, you did so growing up in an inner city. And at that point, you were spending a lot of time climbing inside. So bring us back there and talk to me about how you got started in the sport and why you even got started in the sport. Lord, I wish my mother was here. She she has she has the real story. But I um I've always just I just like climbing things. When I was a kid, before I could walk, 
I would climb over the baby gates to sit around daycare, and the monitors just had no way of keeping me under control. By the time I was four, I would eat lunch on the basketball hoop. I would just sit in the net and just eat my sandwich. And one day, my mother was at school. She's a college professor, and she was talking to one of her colleagues, and she brought me to work. And I decided that while she was distracted, that I should climb the 50-foot flagpole that flew the state flag that was right behind her. So I shimmied my way up it, and I got to the top. And a lady came by, and she looked up, and she helped me down. And as my mother was, like, profusely apologizing, she was like, oh, actually, like, let me write down the address of the local climbing gym. And so she put it on a sticky note and she gave it to my mom and said that I should try rock climbing. And so the next day, my mom brought me into the gym, begged the man at the front desk to get me into the sport because she can't control her ADHD kid. His energy is just crazy. That man at the front desk happens to be my lifetime coach now, Shay Messer. And as soon as I walked into the gym, it was just like I never wanted to leave. I wanted to climb every wall, get to the top of everything. And it just kept going from there. <laughs> That's insane. I love the sentence. And she helped me down the flagpole as if like this person could actually like get to the top of this 50 foot flagpole. I think it was more of a like, keep me calm sort of thing. Like, hey, like you should probably come down. <laughs> I had everything under control. <laughs> and you remember it. You remember it so vividly. I do. I remember. I can't. I wish I could find the lady, honestly. But yeah, I do remember that. If she's somehow a Hurdle podcast listener, a hurdler, and she hears this, you are forever indebted to her. Oh, absolutely. Agreed. <laughs> I would love to like <laughs> buy her a coffee or something. <laughs> Be like, do you know you started all this? <laughs> so you get into climbing and you said you got into the gym and you can't imagine your life without having taken that big step. Talk to me about your first few years in the gym. I mean, did you know from the get-go that this was going to be something that you couldn't get enough of? Well, funny enough, the thing that really got me into climbing that first day was the man at the front desk. I call him that, Shane. Shane put me on the rope and he put me on every angle of the walls, um, every wall in the gym, and I was getting all the way up them. So he put me on the steepest angle and it was a purple taped climb and I, I wanted to get to the top, but it was just a little bit too hard for me, but I was too stubborn to come down. And so I grabbed onto these two holds on the wall and I just cried and I wouldn't come down because I really wanted to get to the top. And so Shane was like, like 15 minutes later, I'm sitting on this wall and Shane's just like, are you going to come down? I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And so I, I made one or two more moves and fell. And I came back every day that week because I had to get to the top of that wall. So I've always just been like competitive by nature. And so Shane saw that in me and asked me to join the, the local climbing team. From there, I just started doing competitions. It's pretty impressive for you because I remember like, I feel like many people go to summer camp, you climb like a rock wall or like just a tall wall and then you go on the zip line to come down and climbing up the wall didn't scare me. But I remember when I was like seven years old at summer camp that I climbed up the wall and I got to the top to the platform where I was supposed to zip line down. And I sat on that platform for like, I don't know, maybe an hour until it got dark and was literally forced to get off of it to go down. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy when you like find that thing you're passionate about. (laughs) Or like as kids, we just latch on to things so much. But for me, I knew climbing was special because I had ADHD growing up and my mother tried putting me in a million other sports like basketball, football, baseball, soccer, like all of them. And I wasn't bad at them, but they just didn't hold my attention. I couldn't carry out a play because, I mean, I would get distracted. I'd sit in the outfit and baseball and just like pick grass, <laughs> you know, it just, I couldn't pay attention. But for some reason, like when I was in the climbing gym on the wall, it was the one time my mother did not have to worry about what I was doing, where I was, because I was just fixated on what was in front of me. Like I just found so much pleasure and passion and like the movement of climbing and like trying to understand and solve the different puzzles that are in front of me, like on the wall. Just like it was a complete obsession and I just wanted to get better and better. And it just completely helped me like focus in everything, not only on climbing, but just like helped me hone in my my energy in life. So when does the, oh my God, I want to climb everything. I want to do it all the time turn into, wow, I'm actually really, really good at climbing and I'm not just going to be doing it all the time. I'm going to like start to see what this could mean for my life. Well, you know, 
I don't really know when that switch kind of came on. I think at some point I was like, I think it probably was like after I won like a couple of national titles actually as a kid, because before I would just like show up and compete and have fun. But like I went to comps because I wanted to see my friends. <laughs> and so I just like happened to do well. And a lot of the coaches across the country were like, he's really talented. Like he could be really good at this. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like I just like climb for fun. And then after my first youth world championships where I placed fourth, but I won every round going into the final and like made a mistake. But at that point, they were like, he could be world champion. And I was like, wow, like maybe this is like a career thing, you know? <laughs> and so I literally after that is when I, I really started getting like real sponsorships and like people started noticing me, uh, started doing hard things outside. It was like a pretty big transition. So maybe around like 13 or so. Like my first sponsorship was when I was 10 with climbing shoes, but like it really got serious around like 13. Wow. 13. And at 13, do you have a manager or is this like you and your mom just kind of taking on the world here? Um, it was kind of like me and my mom. <laughs> I still don't think either of us really saw this. Like my mother's only purpose of investing in me and climbing was so that like I would just find something to channel my energy and passion into. She was just like, I'm just in full support of you finding something productive to hone in your abilities and help you just be like this better person in general. She really loved like how many lessons and like like life tuning that climbing did. And so she was like, I'll fund this regardless. And so at some point together, we were like, this is getting kind of serious. I think we didn't really hire a manager until like last year. <laughs> my mom was always helping me manage that stuff. But well, my mom's not a normal mom. She has a PhD in like operations research and something else rocket sciency that's involved in math. And so like, and she works in the school of business. And so my mother is very in tune with like helping me negotiate contracts and understanding that perspective. And so she, she was a good momager for years, but eventually it got a lot and we needed help. <laughs> A momager. Also, like something else, rocket sciency is just like the best descriptor. <laughs> yeah. No, my mom is pretty often, more likely than not, the smartest person in the room for sure. <laughs> what would you say, uh, growing up and getting more involved in climbing? Obviously, your mom being a big guiding force in that for you was one of the biggest lessons she taught you as you started to gain more and more maybe fame or just success in the sport. Did she say anything to you to kind of keep you grounded on your way? Yeah, actually. My mom, we were just talking about this actually a couple of days ago. My mother's always like, well, because at the beginning of my career, I didn't really like lose competitions very often. By the time I was 15, I was world champion, Pan American champion, open national champion, youth national champion. Like I was holding every title that was possible. And I won like five or six national titles before that. And so my mother would always be like, well, when you lose or like when you're not on top, I mean, you have to find a way to <laughs> accept that and to realize that like, we're here to have fun at the end of the day, the passion of the sport. And I used to hate when she say that. I'm just like, mom, like, why would you put that energy in the air? Like, <laughs> like I'm doing well now, but she was like, yeah, but you can't set yourself up in that way of like, you're not always going to be at the top of the sport. There will always be, well, you're going to get older, you know, competitions are, are going to be harder at some point. Some little child might come along like you did and, and be the person at the top of the sport. And so you kind of have to not only prepare for that, but also transcend that. Like, what is your purpose in this space? And like, how can you help others with the platform that you have? And so that's a big reason why like climbing for change is so important to me and why I've always done a lot of volunteering work, DEI work, because like, yeah, the titles are great. Um, they're very self-gratifying, but like, how can I use this to help others? And that was something my mom like drilled into me as a kid. I promise to double click on climbing for change in just a little bit, but I love the reference that you made about some other little kid could just come into the sport. I mean, obviously you started at the age of six and then you started to see a lot of success. Talk to me about how the sport changed for you as you got older and became a teenager and started to become like really a man. Yeah. I think that a struggle for like a lot of people, a lot of athletes in sports like that is like when your body starts to change significantly, like how you to stay consistent and get over that hump. Like for me, I didn't have a transition really from the youth to the adults. I won my first open nationals that I competed in when I was 15. Like I I've always been on us team in that sense. And so like 
for me, it was like, it's just like autopilot. Like, you know, like I don't really have to do much. I can just do what I do and, and uh, hopefully I'll do well. Like my best is always enough. But as you get older, as my body started changing, as my training started to have to change, you know, like you start to realize like, oh, like I am human. <laughs> like I do have to like accept that, you know, I'm not going to win every competition. Kind of like more so enjoying that process, more so than just enjoying the the success of it, you know, like that, that was really the transition mentally that I had to go through because as my body was changing, I had to mentally get over the fact that like, you're not going to every competition, but you have to still enjoy like going into the gym, attending the competitions and being a part of the sport. I think it's like an evolution for everyone, right? It's like, I remember when I was younger, I would be able to like go out with friends until 11 or 12 or even later and then wake up the next day and like go do a workout. And that was like, oh yeah, I'm young. I can do these things. And now like, if you want me out until 11, first of all, I don't even know if that's possible. I'll probably fall asleep while I'm out, but I am sure as hell not going to be able to get up at the crack of dawn and like go tackle a treadmill session well. (laughs) Understood. I'm 21, but I'm still like, mm -mm. my my curfew is like, I need to be home by 12. Whatever y'all do, I need to be in bed by then. I'm exhausted. (laughs) I think think it's because like, I'm like such an old man when it comes to my program. Like I wake up early to train, like I'm always in the gym, my body's always aching. So I'm just like, I don't feel like being out all the time. But that was such a different story. Like as a kid, I used to be able to be in the gym for like six hours straight, like one session and like be perfectly fine, ready to go after no aches and pains. And now I'm like, no, like I need a physical therapist. I need to stretch. Like I need a warm up process that is meticulous and gets all my joints and my muscles warmed up because I will injure something. But those are the type of changes that I guess I'm referencing where like everything changes as you get older, your body does different things and responds to different things. So you got to just have to adapt with that. And also just adapt to the landscape of the sport, because since I've been in the sport, our sport has progressed significantly. They've been from gyms being hole in the walls in small areas of the country to suddenly having major commercial gyms being in the center of metropolitan areas. Like that was unheard of when I started climbing. And so you have more kids going to the sport. The training is progressing. Our sports in the Olympics, we're getting more exposure. And so as that happens, it's like, I have to keep up with the trends, keep up with the field of athletes. And it can be difficult, but I, I love it. Like I, I love the challenge and I love the competition. You're talking about exposure. You're talking about opportunity. Uh, I've heard you speak before about being one of the only, if not the only black man climbing. Uh, Well, at least, I'm sorry, one of the only black men climbing at your level. Talk to me about what that's been like for you and, and kind of being, you know, what now, especially after the past year, has been kind of a figurehead uh, and a voice for the the black community in your sport. Well, I mean, starting out, I just didn't really have role models that look like me in my sport. They had the posters in the gym of the top level climbers of the time, like Chris Sharma, Adam Andra, like Daniel Woods, like all these people, but none of them were people of color. None of them came from inner cities. A lot of them came from the sport of climbing or like outdoor recreation in general. Um, all of them are white. And so like, it's just, there were backgrounds that I just couldn't identify with. And there was no real blueprints for how I could get to that level. I grew up in an area that we didn't really have a developed climbing team or major climbing gyms. I mean, my gym was a renovated warehouse that had walls that were 17 feet tall and holds and and climbs that didn't change for five years. So, and then I would go to nationals and then you'd see mega gyms with like super tall walls, 70 feet tall and centers and developed teams with programs and nutritionists and all these things. And it's like, I don't know how to compete with that or how to do that. But, you know, I think that I was able to find a process and able to kind of infiltrate that space. And so now that I am where I am and like pretty much really the only representation for for black people at this space at this level, I feel like it's my responsibility to, to give back in that way and to open doors and to help increase that representation with my face. Because I know for a fact that if there were more people who looked like me 
who were at the top of my sport when I was up than the kids in my neighborhood who used to tease me about doing white people sports and doing something unconventional and weird. I mean, I, I think they would be singing a different tune, you know? Yeah, for sure. And now, I mean, after again, the past year and so many brands getting into this space and asking you and coming to you asking, how can we get more involved? What can we do? How can we collaborate? I know that was the match, if you will, for Climbing for Change. So talk to us a little bit about what Climbing for Change is. Absolutely. So Climbing for Change, our mission as a nonprofit is trying to break down those barriers of entry for communities of color and making our sport more accessible and just more inviting in general. In our space, there's, I mean, only 5% of people in our space even identify as a minority and less than 1% of that is African-American, which is such a contrast because in our society, like 40% of America (laughs) represents the minority. And so a lot of the reasons that there's a massive diversity gap in the outdoors and in climbing is just the barriers of entry of cost, the stigma behind it of how historically we've been discriminated against in these spaces in rural communities and just access in general. And so with Climate for Change, we try to bridge those gaps by offering scholarships and grants and also by combining community efforts for diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so we'll go into an area and there'll be a corporate entity that wants to start a program but doesn't know how to do it. In that same area, there'll be a DEI organization that's already there who's doing the work, who has connections with the community, and we'll partner them together They'll combine the resources and the knowledge to really amplify the work. And that's a lot of what we do. We have a DEI connections page so that now people are more aware of the organizations that are in their communities. And so when they go to a new area and they want to be immersed in a community that they feel comfortable with, they can just go to our website and look it up. They can apply for our grants. They can be a part of initiatives that we offer. And so, yeah, a lot of it's just community building and amplifying uh, diversity and inclusion work. You mentioned that you would have been remiss almost if you didn't step up and do something being this face in your sport. At times, does this feel a little bit overwhelming or are you just so deep in your purpose that the work doesn't even feel like work? I think that that idea of giving back has been ingrained in me since I was a kid. Like my grandmother had a drive in Cleveland that she owned where in the winter they would give out coats and food and and just different necessities to to homeless people and people that needed them who didn't have it. And so at three years old, I was in that shelter volunteering, giving out toys to kids at that same age, as I got older and I got an allowance, like my mom would, would ask me if there was any organizations or anything that I wanted to donate to. So I would, I would donate my Christmas money or anything to just different organizations that I thought were impactful at a really young age. And but my mother just always instilled in me, like, to whom much is given, much is required. If you're at this platform, it's your responsibility to be giving back and opening doors for other people who are in not so, I guess, privileged circumstances. And so for me, it's like, I'm in this space. I don't want to be the only one forever. I've been the only one since I started, but I want to leave the sport and kind of see a legacy of, like, I open doors. Like, I'm the first, but I'm not the last. There's a whole just generation of more diverse, motivated people, not only in climbing, but in the outdoors in general. And I think for me, like that would be my greatest accomplishment as an athlete, regardless of what title the medals that I win by the time I retire. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, Baron Fig. I have been journaling for years, but sometimes I just need a little thought starter to help get pen to paper. And that is why I love Baron Fig. Their line of guided editions is perfect for journaling beginners and pros alike. And these editions are just one of the awesome products. They call them tools for thinkers that Baron Fig has to offer. They've got notebooks, pens, desk pads, bags, accessories, and so much more. I am loving the look of their mosaic desk set, which keeps my desk looking sophisticated and organized. I can sit down, grab my lay flat confidant journal and squire pen, and feel like a total boss ready to tackle the day ahead. Of course, they have an awesome deal for the hurdle community. Head on over to baronfig.com. That's B-A-R-O-N-F-I-G.com. And you 
use code HURDLE20 to get 20% off at checkout. Again, that's baronfig.com. Use code HURDLE20 at checkout to get 20% off. Also want to give some love to my friends at Athletic Greens. I rave about them here all the time. You have probably heard about it before, but that's because it is ingrained in my routine. I look forward to that thirst-quenching first sip of it every morning, usually post-run. Athletic Greens is an all-in-one daily supplement with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that supports the body's overall energy, immunity, digestion, and recovery. By adding one scoop of the ultimate daily powder to my iced water in the morning. I'm serving myself the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables. And that is what I love most about this product. As my body's nutritional needs change daily, whether it be due to stress, travel, sleep patterns, the environment, you get the deal. I feel confident in the fact that I am filling the gaps in my diet with just one serving of Athletic Greens. Of course, Athletic Greens also has an offer for you. Head on over to Athletic Greens dot com slash hurdle and get a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Get a free year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. No code necessary. You mentioned traveling and having, in some instances, perhaps a lack of access. And of course, as we addressed, uh, not seeing a lot of people that that looked like you or any people that looked like you. Do you recall any experiences that specifically may have made you feel uncomfortable? Absolutely. Um, I feel like microaggressions in this space were very common for me and my mother at a young age. Um, not so much from kids, more so from like adults and parents. When I first got in the sport, like when it comes to the kids, as long as you like climbing and I like climbing, like it was all good. Like we would climb together and it'd be fun. But, but a lot of times it was the parents and the adults that have more of the tension and the microaggressions. And I, I really felt it when I would go to outdoor communities because a lot of people have this misconception that the outdoors, this oasis that doesn't discriminate and is open to everyone. But it's like, I mean, the actual tree itself may be like that, <laughs> but you have to stay somewhere and you have to eat somewhere. You have to get gas somewhere and get groceries. And so a lot of those communities in rural America are just have really regressive perspectives on race. And I'll never forget being 12 years old and driving to an outdoor area. And I went to go to the gas station, use the bathroom. And on my way out, the man stopped me, illegally searched me, lift up my shirt and, and grabbed me and basically told me that I look like I steal. And when he realized that I didn't have anything in my pockets, he was like, you can go. But by then I had been violated. I had been demeaned. And I was 12 years old. And that was one of my first experiences in the outdoors, at least, where I felt like, wow, like I really don't belong here. And I, I mean, that's not an isolated incident, but it was the one I remember vividly the most. I've been called the N-word in grocery stores <laughs> by people in other aisles. I mean, it, it's definitely been a struggle over the years to just feel comfortable and safe in these spaces and find them. But I think that the more the sport grows, the more normalized that it's becoming. And so I think that that's why representation is so important because, I mean, with the platform that I have on social media, with my nonprofit, the more people that are pushing to these spaces, like, they can't ignore us all. <laughs> and they provide an example for other people to be like, oh, like, if they can do it, I can too. <laughs> yeah. And then the more people, a lot of it's education, the more people you see in the space, the more normalized it becomes, the more accessible they become. I know that your goal here, uh, beyond normalizing people of color in the sport, you also last year came out and spoke about your journey with disordered eating, which is a super difficult topic and, and one that I know men specifically really don't talk a lot about when it comes to athletics. So talk me through a little bit about that and what that journey looked like for you. So when you look at climbing, Climbing is a strength to weight ratio heavy sport. 
we're hanging off our fingertips off of the side of mountains on 90 degree angles. <laughs> and so when you're doing that, it matters to be light and strong. And so a lot of times athletes will test that balance from both perspectives, trying to be a stronger athlete, but also try to be as light as possible. And oftentimes losing weight can be the easier way out for a lot of people. And so um, growing up, I definitely just had, I mean, I was always taller than the other athletes, which comes with its own weight, but also I had a stockier build just from my family. And so I was always just a lot bigger and that concept was always pointed out to me as I was growing up and getting better in the sport by coaches and teammates and other people. And so I kind of internalized that and thought that as I got better and as my goals got bigger, like the only way I can achieve them is if I get smaller and I look like them, um, which is obviously a slippery slope. And so I just developed a really unhealthy relationship with food and it kind of got out of hand to the point where I almost had liver failure from just restricting myself from eating too much. Um, luckily, I came out on the other side of it, and I have a bit of a um, a lot healthier relationship with food now. But yeah, it was definitely a struggle, but just not an uncommon one. I started competing in adult competitions when I was 13 years old, and at that age, it was just so normalized for my idols and the people around us to to comment on each other's weight to comment on what each other were eating and, you know, how we could lose more weight or just be smaller to get better at climbing. And, and yeah, it was just like kind of ingrained in the culture. In your journey to recovery, was there any one moment that you were like, I can't do this anymore? Was it finding out that you were about to have liver failure? What was it? It wasn't necessarily that period for me. I think it was more so after where, you know, my body was changing. I was going through puberty. It was impossible for me to keep my numbers down because obviously if I'm growing and I'm gaining muscle, like I'm going to be heavier. But for me, I interpreted that as I'm not fulfilling my end of the bargain. I'm not doing my job. And so like, it made me feel like a failure and that I couldn't do what I was supposed to do or achieve what I wanted to because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to from the weight perspective. And obviously, because I'm so much bigger than other athletes, I'm going to weigh more than other athletes. I wasn't even an average. And so it just hurt my not only just self-esteem, but also motivation for the sport. And it definitely like, yeah, like negatively impacted me like mentally. But I think what really helped me was not only having my mother there as support, but I ended up actually taking a break from climbing to go to school. And being like maybe outside of that ultra competitive mindset for a little bit helped me kind of put things into perspective. Because for me, the disordered eating wasn't necessarily a self-image thing. It was more of a performance thing for me personally. I always felt like I was able to rationalize it as like, it's because of my sport. Like, it's just the way things are. Like, if I want to be good, this is what it has to be. But when I got to school and I was like, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. And I developed a healthy relationship with food. In hindsight, I was able to recognize that's super unhealthy. Like, I can't believe I used to do that to my body. And, And so having that perspective going back into it and training for the next Olympic cycle, I definitely feel like I have a healthier perspective on food and health and all of that. And I think it's definitely improved my performance, my climbing ability, and just the consistency of my training. Well, I was going to say, now that you're fueling your body better and being more mindful about what you're putting into it and giving yourself the calories you need and the electrolytes you need and refilling your glycogen stores after you're working out for three hours at a time, like you must feel a dramatic difference versus when you just were completely depleted. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what helped then also I was a kid. So there's a certain level of energy that I was just going to have in general. But yeah, I feel so much better as an athlete, so much healthier, but it's more than just physical. It's mental too. It's just like, um, I have more energy. I have more motivation, like climbing and training feels a lot more fun because, you know, I like food. I'm a foodie. And so restricting my body of nutrients was not fun. It tainted my image of the sport in general. But developing healthier habits have just made me love the sport even more, which helps me stay motivated to train and be the best athlete I can be. I love what you wrote in the blog saying, I think it is important to provide a space where kids are able to push themselves to find their own paths instead of conforming to a vision that doesn't fit them. Allow your kids to follow your dreams, but make sure they are doing it in a way that builds them up. These days, what are you doing to build yourself up? (laughs) I think that for me, 
it was finding balance. I feel like a lot of prodigy athletes go through this where when your entire life, not only has this been my life, but everyone expects me to perform at a certain level and to be in the sport in a certain amount. So climbing felt like my entire world. It was all that I wanted to do at one point, but then at some point it became like the only thing that I could do. But now I feel like balancing with hanging out with friends and doing other activities and just being more immersed in life and appreciating these years, you know, like having other hobbies like reading or hiking or, you know, going to hot springs, (laughs) just doing fun things in the area. I think like that has really helped me like feel more grounded and more in context with the world around me and just like it's enjoying the process a lot more. So I think that that's the thing that I feel like is uplifting me the most, like physically and mentally. It's just like just enjoying life more in a lot more other ways than just climbing, like having more dimensions, more layers to myself as a person. You mentioned prodigy, which is such like a true word when it comes to you and your climbing journey. I would imagine in becoming so well-known, so young, and that in combination with the craziness that goes with your sport and climbing these insane routes and going up so high, I mean, the mental work that goes hand-in-hand with the physical work must be so great. So talk to me a little bit about that. I'm sure by now you've worked with a handful of different sports psychologists. <laughs> well, I've had a couple therapists at this point, but I think that especially in my sport, the mental side of things is so important because it's more than just being able to handle pressure. But when you go into a competition, there is no stable element of any of it. In other sports like track and field, like the distance is the same, the track is going to be the same, the technology is the same. But in climbing, every competition that you enter, the arena is different, the location is different, which means the environment and temperature and all that comes into play. The holds are different, the angles are different. Every time you step into the wall, like you get a different problem, a different climb, and so you never know what skill set you're going to need to achieve it. And also, a big part of climbing is problem solving because you put you know, a series of holes in the wall. And it's not who's the strongest. It's who can figure out the most efficient sequence that works with them in this limited time period, which is usually like four minutes on a boulder or six minutes on a lead climb. And so because of how cerebral that process is, it's like you have to be on physically and mentally for the entire competition constantly figuring out like new sequences, new ways to solve climbs and trying to get that done in that period of time and also having to handle the pressure of the situation, like being in a world championship final or something. And so a lot of that comes down to just like repetitively putting yourself in those positions. Like we'll have mock competitions and U.S. team trainings constantly. Um, I read a lot of books about other successful athletes' processes, what they go through mentally. My mom has always been really important about that. Like having that routine where we calm everything down and we recap the training or recap the the competition and making sure that I'm like keeping a positive mindset and regrouping. And so I think that, yeah, routine and just repetitively putting myself in those pressure mindsets is what helps me stay stable and consistent. Do you have any mantras or things that you say to yourself to help you come back to calm? Um, I don't know. I think it's more so just breathe. And also reminding myself that once I go out on the competition wall, it's out of my hands, really. Once I show up, I'm like, I've done everything I can do. I've done the training. I've done all of the, the preparation that I could. So in this moment, all I can do is go out there and do my best and figure it out. If it works out, it's great. If it doesn't, then it wasn't meant to be. But at that point, I have to like allow it to leave my hands and like trust in God that everything will work out. I feel like you probably didn't always have that perspective, right? Like I did the best that I could when things go wrong. Do you remember perhaps a certain instance where you came to understand that you really had to adopt that mindset and that you were going to have to get okay with sometimes falling, sometimes not being the absolute best? Absolutely. I think probably my first youth world championships I went in and the mindset of the team at the time was that the European athletes were so much better than us that it wasn't really possible for us to do well at that level. And so going in, I was like nervous and scared. But then after qualifiers was finished, I was in first place. 
And then after semifinals finish, I was the only person to top the route and I was in first place going into finals by a lot. And so going into finals, I was like, I could win this competition. I had no expectation to do so. And going in, I was like super nervous and like didn't necessarily have the best preparation. So I went up and I went to climb and I was going for a move and my foot slipped and I fell. And I got a score of 41, 41 holds. Little did I know, and I wasn't tired when I fell, but little did I know that if I had gotten positive movement, which is a plus in our scoring system, that would have been silver. And then if I had grabbed the next hold, I would have won the entire competition. And so I was absolutely devastated, like couldn't keep it together. I was like, I was one hold away from being world champion. I just let it go. And I had everything it took to be there. And so like, it took me a minute to realize, you know, like, it just means that there's something else that I needed to work on. Physically, I was prepared, but mentally I was not. And I hadn't prepared myself for that level of expectation and level of pressure. So we had to go into the gym and try a new style of mental preparation. And a year later at the next competition, it was actually the opposite story. I had grown a few inches leading up into the championships. I wasn't physically in shape as much as I had been the year before. And I scraped into the final, but mentally I was able to keep it together and ended up winning my first world title. And so for me, it was just like understanding that going in competition, like competitions are unpredictable. Anything can happen. And sometimes you have to adapt your training in more than one method. But I mean, it's not up to you. Sometimes it's just not meant to be. How have you come to learn to separate your worth as Kai the climber versus Kai the individual? Because I would imagine with those falls and those scrapes, sometimes it can be really difficult. Forget like if you're injured and you can't climb, like there's still worth to you as we know. So how have you come to adopt that and understand that? I think that's come with balance and with age as well. I try to make sure that I have a climbing life. Like I have my friends in climbing, I have my routine and my training, but then once that's out the door and I leave the gym and I go and hang out with my friends, like I'm not Kai the climber or I'm not the world champion athlete. I'm just Kai. <laughs> I'm just chilling, watching a Netflix show or playing a game or going out to an event. I'm just normal. And that way it, it like helps me stay grounded because it's like, I get to do normal things. And I, I'm so glad actually, it's funny because the sport's becoming more popular, but because we're not a sport like basketball or football, like as soon as I leave the gym, I'm unrecognizable. No one knows who I am, which is really peaceful. <laughs> so I, I get to like immerse <laughs> myself in normal life and also have other hobbies and passions, efforts like climbing for change and my nonprofit work and also, you know, just going to basketball games, like reading books, getting a degree in college and having that path and opportunity. It's like not putting all my eggs in one basket and also like diversifying myself as much as possible just so that, you know, if something doesn't work out in climbing, if, you know, tomorrow I have, I get injured and can't do the next Olympics. I, I mean, I still have other things to fall back on. I'm not a one dimensional person. I love this idea of like, I leave the climbing gym and nobody knows who I am. Meanwhile, you just did something pretty dope, which is that you teamed up with Jimmy Chin. Uh, he's the Oscar winning director from Bree Solo. The two of you worked on a two minute film for Got Milk called The Wall. I mean, was that like the most surreal experience or what? Yeah, it was pretty cool because <laughs> I mean, I... Like we talked about earlier, I love climbing things. I always used to climb sides of buildings and, you know, things I wasn't supposed to. But those were the things that got me in trouble as a kid. My mom hated it. The kids at school thought I was weird. And so to be able to bring back this thing that used to get me in trouble and people would say would make me end up somewhere I'm not supposed to and allow that activity to be the thing that helps push this sport into the mainstream in a different way, like open doors and opportunities. It just feels like a huge full circle moment. And it was so special. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I get to climb the side of a building. <laughs> and instead of getting in trouble for it, I'm actually giving exposure to my sports and help you know, little black kids and kids of color see some someone who looks like them doing activity that's way out of the norm. Like that's that's a door right there that's open. That's an opportunity. Like that just it felt like really really special for me. And so you guys set up uh, set up on top of a thirty story building in downtown Kansas City. I mean, what kind of view is that? <laughs> it was a beautiful view actually because it was like the 
like the second tallest building in the downtown area. And so I could see the entire city. It was awesome. Everyone was like, are you scared? And I'm like, no, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> I am definitely not scared. <laughs> You're like scared. a real life Spider-Man. Yeah. I'm like, this is like chill for me. <laughs> I mean, I climbed the side of real mountains <laughs> for a living. And so like, this is nothing, but it was still thrilling. You know, like I got that same thrill that I get on rocks when I do cool moves that I do and that I did on that wall. Because I mean, in the film, there's this jump in the middle of the climb where like I have to jump from a little hole and like all points off dino to this, to this little behold. And when I was doing it, I just felt like I was flying. Like I was in midair and that like, it was just me and the wall. And that's like kind of those moments that I live for in climbing. (laughs) The ones where you feel like you're flying and like with zero inhibitions. Do you have, uh, and I can't even imagine that there's one answer to this question, but like a favorite climb that you've ever done, or perhaps like just this one impeccable view that you will just always, always go back to? Mm. You know, there's this photo that I use really often because I love it so much, but it's also because the view is amazing. But there's this area, um, there's this climbing area called the New River Gorge, and it's in West Virginia. Oof. Slade. No, no, it's Slade, Kentucky. No. Actually, no, I'm that's so terrible. It's actually Fayetteville, West Virginia. It's funny because I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina, so I should have remembered that. But it's in Fayetteville, West Virginia. It's an area called the New River Gorge, and this is a crag called the Cirque. And you go there and you climb to the top of the wall and you look out and you can just see like the running river and the forest and the trees. And like, that's a really beautiful area for me. But it was one of my first areas that I ever went to as a kid. So it was my first exposure to outdoor climbing, which is why I appreciated it so much. But I definitely think that that, that area is always really beautiful for me. But I, I've had the opportunity to travel the world and, and see a lot of different places. And so that, that's a hard question, but I definitely have to stick with the West Virginia one. Is it crazy for you to be able to travel the world and having heard how special the relationship is between you and your mom, like be able to bring your mom along with you? Oh, absolutely. I think it's funny because my mother was actually scared of heights. She didn't like climbing at all when I started out. And so the fact that she was so willing to come with me, to learn to belay with me, to help with all of that was just super special. (laughs) And I think she's learned to appreciate it, sort of. She still doesn't climb. She she doesn't like climbing. I get to pressure her into climbing like once every seven years. <laughs> but <laughs> like, I mean, she still doesn't really enjoy the actual activity itself, but she definitely learned to like, I mean, I think what it is is that she, as an ADHD kid, she didn't really trust a ton of people with like managing me because she knew I was a handful. <laughs> so she felt obligated at first. And I think now she kind of just like likes hanging out with me. She, she won't admit it, but I think she likes hanging out with me. I'm sure she'll admit it. (laughs) So for you now, I mean, someone goes to your Instagram page, they see someone with 90,000 followers, a climber making his name known in this sport. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? Wow. When will my reflection show? <laughs> That's what I think of. That also, Moonlight's as a pro singer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, what do I see when I look back in the mirror? You know, I feel like I just see like a 21-year-old college kid who likes to climb rocks. <laughs> and I just, every day I wake up, I just feel so blessed that I have the platform and the opportunity to really create the change that I want to see in the world, whether it's in my immediate community or abroad, the more exposure that I get, the more opportunities that I get, like it's not just a win for me, but it's a win for my community. And so I think that that's what motivates me to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and and just say like, you know, like, wow, like I can't believe we're here. (laughs) It's just, it's amazing. You mentioned that your coach now is the same man that you saw at the front desk when you went climbing for the first time. Talk to me about one of the best pieces of advice that he has offered you along this journey. I think the best, I didn't even think about it. I think the best one is I used to be a nervous wreck in isolation. I'd be in ISO like at finals of national championships and I'd just be like, what if I don't win? Like, what if I don't do well? Like, what if I just like slip at the start? Like what happens then? 
And he's looking at me, and he's like, I literally don't care. <laughs> like, I just want you to go out there and have a good time and have fun. And as long as you do your best, I will always be proud of you. And those words always used to, like, ground me and make me feel more comfortable and, and sound, knowing that I had his support and the support of my family out there. So I think the lesson I learned from that is, like, in anything that you do, no matter how successful you are, no matter how far you get to bring it or go with it, just remembering why you're there, enjoying the process and truly loving what you do is just so important. So important. Final couple of questions here. I know we talked about uh, your journey when it came to disordered eating. I'm sure there are individuals listening to this right now who have had similar struggles. Uh, for those individuals, what kind of advice would you offer them uh, to getting through that particular hurdle? I think the best advice I have is just not being afraid to ask for help or to be vulnerable. I can guarantee you that no matter how embarrassing or private you think that the matter is, there are other people out there that can relate to your story and that can get you the help that you need even when you don't know how to help yourself. I feel so blessed that I had a mother that was someone tuned with me and attentive and understood when I needed help because honestly, it, it saved my life. And I just can only pray that other people can get a similar help and to help them through that process. I don't know where I'd be without her help and the help of people around me who were able to just keep me mentally grounded and, and help me with my, my disordered eating. What are you excited about? What are you looking forward to right now? Right now, I'm looking forward to getting back into training for the next Olympic cycle. So I've already started training. I've already entered my first national competitions in my just different team selection camps and processes. And so that process, is, it feels like home for me because I've been doing it for so long. But um, it's nice to be back in the swing of things. I'm also excited about investing more in my nonprofit, Climbing for Change. Um, we just opened up a new grants program just to get more diversity in the root setting process, which is the people who put the climbs on the wall at different competitions. We're hoping to revamp some new programs and old programs that are going on, including our one in Atlanta, where we built a climbing wall and a recreation center and partnered with city government and the local climbing gym to provide free transportation and climbing programs at the gym in Atlanta. And just, yeah, like, just providing more opportunities for communities of color and just underserved communities who have never had access to the support before or knew it was possible for them. Right now, you have an opportunity to offer the Kai who is not giving his body what it needs, struggling and maybe doing some serious damage to his liver, a piece of advice looking back on that hurdle moment right now. What do you tell him? That, you know, climbing isn't the end of the world and that the most important thing about doing what you're doing is enjoying the process, enjoying every single step of it. Make yourself miserable in the gym for months just for a single gratifying moment that happens over a weekend. It's just not sustainable. And so just calm yourself down and find healthier ways to, to live life and just enjoy yourself. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful for you. And I, I seriously join you in this mission of hoping that what we're doing and the good that we're doing can empower other people to feel a little bit less alone on their journeys. Talk to me about how the hurdlers can keep up with you. How can they follow along with you as you prep for 2024? Give us the info. Absolutely. You can follow me on social media at Kai Leitner, my name, pretty much on any platform. Well, more so Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> you can also follow Climbing for Change, my nonprofit work, at Climbing, the number four, Change, both on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can go to my website, kai-leitner.com, to follow my story and my blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I'm over at Hurdle Podcast and at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs>